Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. Speech of Sedition, Part 2 Scott Nearing. You have heard of Scott Nearing. He is the greatest teacher in the United States. He was in the University of Pennsylvania until the Board of Trustees, consisting of great capitalists, captains of industry, found that he was teaching sound economics to the students in his classes. This sealed his fate at that institution. They sneeringly charged, just as the same usurers, money-changers, Pharisees, hypocrites charged the Judean carpenter some twenty centuries ago, that he was a false teacher and that he was stirring up the people. The man of Galilee, the carpenter, the working man who became the revolutionary agitator of his day, soon found himself to be an undesirable citizen in the eyes of the ruling knaves, and they had him crucified. And now their lineal descendants say of Scott Nearing, he is preaching false economics. We cannot crucify him as we did his elder brother, but we can deprive him of employment and so cut off his income and starve him to death or into submission. We will not only discharge him, but place his name upon the blacklist and make it impossible for him to earn a living. He is a dangerous man, for he is teaching the truth and opening the eyes of the people. And the truth, oh, the truth, has always been unpalatable and intolerable to the class who live out of the sweat and misery of the working class. Max Eastman has been indicted and his paper suppressed, just as the papers with which I have been connected have all been suppressed. What a wonderful compliment they play us. They are afraid that we may mislead and contaminate you. You are their wards. They are your guardians and they know what is best for you to read and hear and know. They are bound to see to it that our vicious doctrines do not reach your ears. And so, in our great democracy, under our free institutions, they flatter our press by suppression, and they ignorantly imagine that they have silenced revolutionary propaganda in the United States. What an awful mistake they make for our benefit. As a man of justice to them, we should respond with resolutions of thanks and gratitude. Thousands of people who had never before heard of our papers are now inquiring for and insisting upon seeing them. They have succeeded only in arousing curiosity in our literature and propaganda. And woe to him who reads socialist literature from curiosity. He is surely a goner. I have known of a thousand experiments, but never one that failed. John M. Work. You know John, now on the editorial staff of the Milwaukee Leader. When I first knew him, he was a lawyer out in Iowa. The capitalists out there became alarmed because of the rapid growth of the socialist movement. So they said, we have to find some able fellow to fight this menace. They concluded that John Work was the man for the job and they said to him, John, you are a bright young lawyer. You have a brilliant future before you. We want to engage you to find out all you can about socialism and then proceed to counteract its baneful effects and check its further growth. John at once provided himself with socialist literature and began his study of the Red Menace, with the result that after he had read and digested a few volumes, he was a full-fledged socialist and has been fighting for socialism ever since. How stupid and short-sighted the ruling class really is. Cupidity is stone-blind. It has no vision. 
The greedy, profit-seeking exploiter cannot see beyond the end of his nose. He can see a chance for an opening. He is cunning enough to know what graft is and where it is, and how it can be secured, but vision he has none, not the slightest. He knows nothing of the great throbbing world that spreads out in all directions. He has no capacity for literature, no appreciation of art, no soul for beauty. That is the penalty the parasites pay for the violation of the laws of life. The Rockefellers are blind. Every move they make in their game of greed but hastens their own doom. Every blow they strike at the socialist movement reacts upon themselves. Every time they strike at us, they hit themselves. It never fails. Every time they strangle a socialist paper, they add a thousand voices proclaiming the truth of the principles of socialism and the ideals of the socialist movement. They help us in spite of themselves. Socialism is a growing idea, an expanding philosophy. It is spreading over the entire face of the earth. It is as vain to resist it as it would be to arrest the sunrise on the morrow. It is coming, coming, coming all along the line. Can you not see it? If not, I advise you to consult an oculist. There is certainly something the matter with your vision. It is the mightiest movement in the history of mankind. What a privilege to serve it. I have regretted a thousand times that I can do so little for the movement that has done so much for me. The little that I am, the little that I am hoping to be, I owe to the socialist movement. It has given me my ideas and ideals, my principles and convictions, and I would not exchange one of them for all of Rockefeller's bloodstained dollars. It has taught me how to serve, a lesson to me of priceless value. It has taught me the ecstasy in the handclasp of a comrade. It has enabled me to hold high communion with you and made it possible for me to take my place side by side with you in the great struggle for the better day. To multiply myself over and over again, to thrill with a fresh-born manhood, to feel life truly worthwhile, to open new avenues of vision, to spread out glorious vistas, to know that I am kin to all that throbs, to be class-conscious and to realise that, regardless of nationality, race, creed, colour or sex, Every man, every woman who toils, who renders useful service, every member of the working class without an exception, is my comrade, my brother and sister, and that to serve them and their cause is the highest duty of my life. And in their service I can feel myself expand. I can rise to the stature of a man and claim the right to a place on earth, a place where I can stand and strive to speed the day of industrial freedom and social justice. Yes, my comrades, my heart is attuned to yours. Aye, all our hearts now throb as one great heart responsive to the battle cry of the social revolution. Here, in this alert and inspiring assemblage, our hearts are with the Bolsheviki of Russia. Those heroic men and women, those unconquerable comrades, have by their incomparable valour and sacrifice added fresh lustre to the fame of the international movement. Those Russian comrades of ours have made greater sacrifices, have suffered more, and have shed more heroic blood than any like number of men and women anywhere on earth. They have laid the foundation of the first real democracy that ever drew the breath of life in this world. And the very first act of the triumphant Russian revolution was to proclaim a state of peace with all mankind, coupled with a fervent moral appeal, not to kings, not to emperors, rulers or diplomats, but to the people of all nations. 
Here we have the very breath of democracy, the quintessence of the dawning freedom. The Russian Revolution proclaimed its glorious triumph in its ringing and inspiring appeal to the peoples of all the earth. In a humane and fraternal spirit, new Russia, emancipated at last from the curse of the centuries, called upon all nations engaged in the frightful war, the central powers as well as the Allies, to send representatives to a conference to lay down terms of peace that should be just and lasting. Here was the supreme opportunity to strike the blow to make the world safe for democracy. Was there any response to that noble appeal that in some day to come will be written in letters of gold in the history of the world? Was there any response whatever to that appeal for universal peace? No, not the slightest attention was paid to it by the Christian nations engaged in the terrible slaughter. It has been charged that Lenin and Trotsky and the leaders of the revolution were treacherous, that they made a traitorous peace with Germany. Let us consider that proposition briefly. At the time of the revolution, Russia had been three years in the war. Under the Tsar, she had lost more than four million of her ill-clad, poorly-equipped, half-starved soldiers, slain outright or disabled on the field of battle. She was absolutely bankrupt. Her soldiers were mainly without arms. This was what was bequeathed to the revolution by the Tsar and his regime. And for this condition, Lenin and Trotsky were not responsible, nor the Bolsheviki. For this appalling state of affairs, the Tsar and his rotten bureaucracy were solely responsible. When the Bolsheviki came into power and went through the archives, they found and exposed the secret treaties, the treaties that were made between the Tsar and the French government, the British government and the Italian government, proposing, after the victory was achieved, to dismember the German Empire and destroy the Central Powers. These treaties have never been denied nor repudiated. Very little has been said about them in the American press. I have a copy of these treaties, showing that the purpose of the Allies is exactly the purpose of the Central Powers, and that is the conquest and spoliation of the weaker nations that has always been the purpose of war. Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. In the Middle Ages, when the feudal lords who inhabited the castles whose towers may still be seen along the Rhine concluded to enlarge their domains, to increase their power, their prestige and their wealth, they declared war upon one another. But they themselves did not go to war any more than the modern feudal lords, the barons of Wall Street, go to war. The feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars and their miserable serfs fought all the battles. The poor ignorant serfs had been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons who held them in contempt. And that is war in a nutshell. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. They have always taught and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourselves slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war, and strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. And here let me emphasise the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, 
but the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war and they alone make peace. Yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. That is their motto, and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. You who have your lives to lose, you certainly above all others have the right to decide the momentous issues of war and peace. Rose Pastor Stokes, and when I mention her name I take off my hat. Here we have another heroic and inspiring comrade. She had her millions of dollars at command. Did her wealth restrain her an instant? On the contrary, her supreme devotion to the cause outweighed all considerations of a financial or social nature. She went out boldly to plead the cause of the working class, and they rewarded her high courage with a ten years' sentence to the penitentiary. Think of it. Ten years? What atrocious crime had she committed? What frightful things had she said? Let me answer candidly. She said nothing more than I have said here this afternoon. I want to admit, I want to admit without reservation, that if Rose Pastor Stokes is guilty of crime, so am I. If she is guilty for the brave part she has taken in this testing time of human souls, I would not be cowardly enough to plead my innocence. And if she ought to be sent to the penitentiary for ten years, so ought I without a doubt. What did Rose Pastor Stokes say? Why, she said that a government could not at the same time serve both the profiteers and the victims of the profiteers. Is it not true? Certainly it is, and no one can successfully dispute it. Roosevelt said a thousand times more in the very same paper, the Kansas City Star. Roosevelt said vauntingly the other day that he would be heard if he went to jail. He knows very well that he is taking no risk of going to jail. He is shrewdly laying his wires for the Republican nomination in 1920, and he is an adept in making the appeal of the demagogue. He would do anything to discredit the Wilson administration that he may give himself and his party all credit. That is the only rivalry there is between the two old capitalist parties, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, the political twins of the master class. They are not going to have any friction between them this fall, they are all patriots in this campaign, and they are going to combine to prevent the election of any disloyal socialist. I have never heard anyone tell of any difference between these corrupt capitalist parties. Do you know of any? I certainly do not. The situation is that one is in and the other trying to break in, and that is substantially the only difference between them. Rose Pastor Stokes never uttered a word she did not have a legal, constitutional right to utter. But her message to the people, the message that stirred their thoughts and opened their eyes, that must be suppressed, her voice must be silenced. And so she was promptly subjected to a mock trial and sentenced to the penitentiary for ten years. Her conviction was a foregone conclusion. The trial of a socialist in a capitalist court is at best a farcical affair. What ghost of a chance had she in a court with packed jewellery and a corporation tool on the bench? not the least in the world, and so she goes to the penitentiary for ten years if they carry out their brutal and disgraceful programme. For my part, I do not think they will. In fact, I feel sure they will not. 
If the war were over tomorrow, the prison doors would open to our people. They simply mean to silence the voice of protest during the war. What a compliment it is to the socialist movement to be thus persecuted for the sake of the truth. The truth alone will make the people free. And for this reason the truth must not be permitted to reach the people. The truth has always been dangerous to the rule of the rogue, the exploiter, the robber. So the truth must be ruthlessly suppressed. That is why they are trying to destroy the socialist movement. And every time they strike a blow they add a thousand new voices to the hosts, proclaiming that socialism is the hope of humanity and has come to emancipate the people from their final form of servitude. How good this sip of cool water from the hand of a comrade. It is as refreshing as if it were out on the desert waste. And how good it is to look into your glowing faces this afternoon. You are really good looking to me, I assure you. And I am glad there are so many of you. Your tribe has increased amazingly since first I came here. You used to be so few and far between. A few years ago, when you struck a town, the first thing you had to do was to see if you could locate a socialist. And you were pretty lucky if you struck the trail of one before you left town. If he happened to be the only one and he is still living, he is now regarded as a pioneer and pathfinder. He holds a place of honour in your esteem, and he has lodgment in the hearts of all who have come after him. It is far different now. You can hardly throw a stone in the dark without hitting a socialist. They are everywhere in increasing numbers, and what marvellous changes are taking place in the people. Some years ago I was to speak at Warren in this state. It happened to be at the time that President McKinley was assassinated. In common with all others I deplored that tragic event. There is not a socialist who would have been guilty of that crime. We do not attack individuals. We do not seek to avenge ourselves upon those opposed to our faith. We have no fight with individuals as such. We are capable of pitying those who hate us. We do not hate them. We know better. We would freely give them a cup of water if they needed it. There is no room in our hearts for hate except for the system, the social system in which it is possible for one man to amass a stupendous fortune doing nothing, while millions of others suffer and struggle and agonise and die for the bare necessities of existence. President McKinley, as I have said, had been assassinated. I was first to speak at Portsmouth, having been booked there some time before the assassination. Promptly the Christian masters of Portsmouth met in special session and passed a resolution declaring that Debs, more than any other person, was responsible for the assassination of our beloved president. It was due to the doctrine that Debs was preaching that this crime was committed according to those patriotic parsons, and so this pious gentry, the followers of the meek and lowly Nazarene, concluded that I must not be permitted to enter the city. And they had the mayor issue an order to that effect. I went there soon after, however. I was to speak at Warren, where President McKinley's double cousin was postmaster. I went there and registered. I was soon afterward invited to leave the hotel. I was exceedingly undesirable that day. I was served with notice that the hall would not be opened and that I would not be permitted to speak. I sent back word to the mayor by the only socialist left in town, and he only remained because they did not know he was there. I sent word to the mayor that I would speak in Warren that night, according to schedule, or I would leave there in a box for the return trip. The Grand Army of the Republic called a special meeting and then marched to the hall in full uniform and occupied the front seats in order to silence me if my speech did not suit them. 
I went to the hall, however, found it open, and made my speech. There was no interruption. I told the audience frankly who was responsible for the president's assassination. I said, as long as there is misery caused by robbery at the bottom, there will be assassination at the top. I showed them, evidently to their satisfaction, that it was their own capitalist system that was responsible, the system that had impoverished and brutalised the ancestors of the poor witless boy who had murdered the president. Yes, I made my speech that night, and it was well received, but when I left there I was still an undesirable citizen. Some years later I returned to Warren. It seemed that the whole population was out for the occasion. I was received with open arms. I was no longer a demagogue, no longer a fanatic or an undesirable citizen. I had become exceedingly respectable, simply because the socialists had increased in numbers and socialism had grown in influence and power. If ever I become entirely respectable, I shall be quite sure that I have outlived myself. It is the minorities who have made the history of this world. It is the few who have had the courage to take their places at the front, who have been true enough to themselves to speak the truth that was in them, who have dared oppose the established order of things, who have espoused to the cause of the suffering, struggling poor, who have upheld without regard to personal consequences the cause of freedom and righteousness. It is they, the heroic, self-sacrificing few, who have made the history of the race and who have paved the way from barbarism to civilization. The many prefer to remain upon the popular side. They lack the courage and vision to join a despised minority that stands for a principle, they have not the moral fibre that withstands, endures and finally conquers. They are to be pitied and not treated with contempt for they cannot help their cowardice. But, thank God, in every age and in every nation there have been the brave and self-reliant few and they have been sufficient to their historic task. And we, we who are here today, are under infinite obligations to them because they suffered, they sacrificed, they went to jail, they had their bones broken upon the wheel, they were burned at the stake and their ashes scattered to the winds by the hands of hate and revenge in their struggle to leave the world better for us than they found it for themselves. We are under eternal obligations to them because of what they did and what they suffered for us and the only way we can discharge that obligation is by doing the best we can for those who are to come after us. And this is the high purpose of every socialist on earth. Everywhere they are animated by the same lofty principles. Everywhere they have the same noble ideals. Everywhere they are clasping hands across national boundary lines. Everywhere they are calling one another comrade, the blessed word that springs from the heart of unity and bursts into blossom upon the lips. Each passing day they are getting into closer touch all along the battle line, waging the holy war of the working class of the world against the ruling and exploiting class of the world. They make many mistakes and they profit by them all. They encounter numerous defeats and grow stronger through them all. They never take a backward step. The heart of the international socialist never beats a retreat.